Welcome to Hot Topics in Kidney Health, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation. Each episode, we highlight the latest in kidney research, bring you up-to-date news in kidney care, dispel myths, and answer your kidney health questions. Shared decision-making can play a vital role in the treatment of kidney disease. When physicians involve patients in their care, they may be able to help slow progression and improve outcomes. In this episode, we discussed how patients and their physicians can achieve this and hear stories from patients who have been there. Hi there, I'm Ann Sarah Pabanga, and I'm the mother of two daughters, and my younger daughter had a kidney and liver transplant almost 15 years ago this June, and I'm happy to be here today to talk about shared decision-making. Elizabeth, could you introduce yourself, please? Sure. Um, I'm Elizabeth Fortune, and I'm a dialysis patient. I've been on dialysis for eight years, and I have in-stage renal disease, obviously. Dr. Wong? Oh, sure. My name is Susan Wong. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Washington. I'm also an adult nephrologist at the Seattle VA, and I also conduct research on treatment practices for advanced kidney disease and end-of-life care for patients with kidney disease, and I'm very happy to be here. And then, hi, I'm Dr. Taylor House. I'm a pediatric nephrologist at Seattle Children's Hospital and the University of Washington, and I perform research that centers on enabling flourishing for children with kidney disease and their families through the integration of palliative care. And so one of the areas of focus of that research interest is how we communicate with families and family-centered decision-making. And so that's what brings me to this work today. Thank you. That's wonderful to hear. I'm wondering, we know you did a study recently about shared decision-making. I'm wondering if um, Dr. Wong or Dr. House, one of you would like to start telling us a little bit about that study? Well, I was very fortunate to be able to work with Dr. Wong on this project, and she is really the, the brain operation of the entire project. But the focus of this work is to better understand how patients with kidney disease and their clinicians work together to make decisions about how to best approach and manage and treat their kidney disease. So we were fortunate to have 29 patients and then 10 of the clinicians who served them to talk more about that process and the different areas that impacted their decision-making for their kidney disease. So how was the topic of dialysis discussed with patients in the study? So we had an interview study that was performed. So basically, it just means that the patients were able to come in and either over the phone or in person share some of their experiences with a member of our research team. And during that interview, we asked questions like what options had been placed on the table for their kidney disease, what factors impacted how they made those decisions, what was important to them as they walked through that process, and basically just to share more about what that experience was like for them. Dr. Wong, would you like to tell us a little bit more about the what you found in the study? What were some of the results? Yeah. Um, so something that was really unique about this study uh, was that we interviewed both patients and their clinicians. And there have been plenty of studies that were investigators have interviewed patients, but they never talked to their providers or they talked to providers and they never talked to their patients. So you, you never saw both sides of the coin at the same time. So that was that was really fun. I think one of the first things that struck me about it is that when we asked patients, hey, can you can you name a clinician who you talk to, who you trust in making these decisions with you and that we could talk to? And they did not all name their nephrologists. They named a lot of different people. 
everything from social workers to oncologists to surgeons, primary care providers. And I thought it really struck me as a nephrologist. Here I am thinking it's it's just me and my kidney doctor who's going to be making these decisions. But no, it really broadened my eyes to really making sure we bring everybody into this conversation because patients are not just talking to us and, and trying to figure out this decision. In the study itself, we focused on the themes that both the provider and the patient raised. Um, patients raised a bunch of other issues that kind of came into decision making and so did clinicians. But we we really wanted to just try and focus on what are the themes that that patients and providers both brought to the interview. And it was it was really interesting how they had different viewpoints on the same issues. I wouldn't say they were antagonistic or antithetical, but just different views on the on the same issues. There were kind of four main themes. The first was that they saw kidney disease as one of many priorities in the patient's life. And they both had different perspectives on how do you actually balance all of these priorities and where does kidney disease fall into this? The second one was where was the focus of attention? Uh, is it on the present or the future? And patients really focused on the present day. And, and clinicians were more focused on, on future-oriented, preparing for the future. The other theme was how do we make these decisions based on what data, on, on what expertise? And patients brought in their values, their lived experience in shaping that decision. And clinicians brought in clinical practice guidelines. They brought in, you know, this biometric data. You know, they, they, were, they, were, they were working with different sources of, of information and evidence to, to inform that their, their guidance and decision making. And then the last one was that they were both sensitive to the power dynamics. The, the, the patients and, and, and clinicians don't come into visits on equal footing, and they're conscious of that. And how do you navigate that, that, this awkward power dynamic? So um, it, it was interesting to see kind of this, you know, two, two different perspectives on the same issues, how, how they interpreted it. Elizabeth, would you like to tell us a little bit more about your experience and how your kind of um, your views on this research? Or did it bring out any thoughts in you? Well, it's just interesting hearing Dr. Wong talk about you interview the patient, but not the clinician. You interview the clinician and not the patient and really getting to see everything, seeing the two people together, like getting the, the experiences together. My experience is I was actually being treated for cancer when I went into, it was not kidney cancer, but I was being treated for cancer when I went into straight into end stage renal disease. And so if my oncol I was in the hospital, my oncologist walked in one day and said, you got to start dialysis. So, you know, I immediately started on chemo and that's what I did. And I honestly thought that's what dialysis was going to be and thought that's what the rest of my life was going to be. But then when I got home um, and the doctor I started seeing here, he started immediately talking to me about peritoneal dialysis. And together we kind of made that my goal. Like he understood I was one of his younger patients. I was married and there was a lot that like my husband I wanted to do and he kind of made PD kind of the goal for me. Like, let's get you strong enough. And I had some pulmonary issues at the time. So I did get some chest tubes 
taken out. And, you know, there, there was a lot I had to do. So it took me a little over a year of being on chemo before I was ready to move to PD. But when he started talking to me about PD, he really talked about the pros of it, about kind of getting your life back. And he made, he made it sound great. Like you hook up at night, you do it while you sleep, you pop off the machine and you live life as normal. And for a while, that's true, you know. And then when I started talking to, well, like Dr. Wong was pointing out, I didn't just take my doctor's word for it. Like, oh, I'll work towards PD. Who am I going to ask? The people I actually see 12 hours a week who are the lab techs and the nurses and the social worker. I, for a while, kind of put it out of my mind. But when the nurses started talking to me about PD and showing me how PD worked, it really kind of came more from some of the nurses where I'm like, okay, this seems like it would be a better fit for me and my husband and for the life we have and our lifestyle. So that's kind of how we came to make that decision. I did not have a decision in the beginning to start dialysis, but I was empowered to make a decision to switch modalities. That's so interesting because our situation was similar. No, not at all similar in experiencing, <laughs> but yeah. but in that we had no choice. My my daughter was born um, healthy, we thought, and when she was uh, very young, at one or two months, she was vomiting and crying and um, losing weight. And so we did some tests and discovered that she at three months was in kidney failure, um, but we didn't know the cause. And we had to do a lot of research, um, genetic testing and checking for everything that we could possibly check for to find the root cause. And um, at four months of age, we found out that she was going to need a kidney transplant and a liver transplant because of her rare genetic disorder. It's called primary hyperoxaluria type one. So infant onset and very severe, it's kind of commonly known as oxalosis. And so if left untreated, she would, she wouldn't live. She, she would need treatment. So we didn't have a choice either. It was um, one of those situations that just shocked us and we just had to set out on the course. So, you know, at five months of age, she got a G-tube and her hemodialysis catheter because this type of um, disease means that you have to you have to do hemodialysis um, to remove the oxalate. So it was not an option to do peritoneal dialysis. So we had to relocate to a center where they could handle this dialysis. And luckily, we were able to find the center that um, had already done this before on an infant, and it's incredibly dangerous. So we were very grateful to find that center, but we ended up doing daily hemodialysis for an entire year on her every single day. And then at, at, at 10 months of age, she at, we added peritoneal dialysis at night. <laughs> so she was dialyzed around the clock. It was basically, we had the afternoons off, but you know, we're at the hospital all morning and then, you know, evenings we're at home. So we didn't have any choice. <laughs> um, that was tough, but we looked towards transplant and that was where um, we found that we could, it was, you know, as, as you were saying, Elizabeth, there was this um, hope for the future that this would, you know, peritoneal dialysis would make things better and, and transplant has made things better for her. So we're incredibly grateful that um, 
she was able to get through that. Uh, at 16 months, she was transplanted with a, a combined kidney and liver transplant. And, and like I said, she's celebrating 15 years post-transplant this June. So this paper was very interesting to me because I just never thought about the idea of asking about dialysis or, and trying to convince a patient. So I'm wondering, Dr. House or Dr. Wong, what types of conversations you've had with patients and, and, and the research in this study what you found in those conversations about dialysis? Yeah, I, I think that perspective may be a little bit different between Susan and I too, because of our experience as being either adult clinicians or pediatric clinicians. And one of the things that I find most rewarding and like hearing you talk about it, answer is I think really beautiful to to hear how your your story unfolds. Um, but this idea that oftentimes whenever I meet a patient and their family. Um, that family is certainly at the center of the decision-making, but it's much more of a conversation between the care team and the parents than it necessarily is the child. And so then trying to learn how to incorporate that, that young person as they grow and start to take a more active role in that process and in the decision-making, I think is a really um, interesting and rewarding component of it. And a part that I really like to work with parents on too, because I don't think it necessarily comes naturally to me as a nephrologist or maybe necessarily to the parent either whenever they've done such a brilliant job of caring for and protecting their child for so many years. So I think there's a little bit of a different dynamic there in pediatrics than there is in adult nephrology. And I don't know, Susan, if you want to speak maybe more to the adult nephrology side of things. Elizabeth's story and, and both of your stories bring up two kind of uh, thoughts for me and, and remind me or make me think about my own experiences is that there's this tension, I think, sometimes in this dynamic between patients and, and, and their clinicians about do we take a best interest approach or a patient centered approach? And these two concepts are kind of kind of difficult to put your hands around, um, but I think it's important to make the distinction. The end goal is really to help the patient, but the approach is really different. Best interest is when the clinician kind of has an agenda. They kind of have an idea of what they think is going to be best for the patient. And then they kind of, and I, I mean this kindest way possible, sell something, maybe sell PD or sell a transplant or sell something. And a patient-centered approach is where you start with the patient. Tell me about your goals. Tell me about your values. And then let me let me then frame the options in a way that makes sense or relates to the things that matter to you. And we and the presentation is different. And so what that looks like, the conversation unfolds really differently. And this is the way I, I, I like to think I do it. I hope I do it. My patients believe that I do it this way. But I start off with very simple questions like, what does a good day look like to you? As you look to the future, what are you most worried about? Uh, what are you hoping for? If time were limited, what is most important uh, to you? What is something that we need to know about you to take the best care of you? And it's through these kinds of roundabout questions that people tell me about their life story and what's important, what's kind of guided their decision-making at that point. And then I can say, okay, well, given what you're telling me about what's important, let me tell you how PD could support it and maybe not, um, or how hemodialysis could and maybe not, or really both could do the same job at, at achieving that. And that's kind of how we work through things. I imagine that you, your families have, have maybe seen some version of this kind of best interest or patient-centered approach at, at various times in your in your lives. But um, I think um, when we talk about shared decision-making, it's shared decision-making is really promoting that patient-centered approach. It's really trying to bring the, those 
patient there front and centered into the decision making. Um, but for a very long time, we medicine has always been practiced at a best as a best interest approach. Um, maybe some would say it's still very much a best interest approach kind of there. And I think what our their study shows is where the where the friction can lie when you've got these two competing approaches at play. It, it's funny how you kind of set out. You said, for lack of a better word, sell a patient on a certain modality like the doctor that I had at the time that moved me from hemo to PD, I would say it was almost like trying to sell me on PD. And I, I, I think he did it in my best interest in the sense of, I think he knew how miserable I was doing hemo. And like, I, I was not doing well physically on hemo. Um, so, but it, he, he definitely only told me like the pros of it, you know, and like really tried to sell me on it. But the doctor that I have now, she taught me you do dialysis to live, not live to do dialysis. And she's always been very much more centered on my needs and what my husband and I come to her with when something not working or when I'm struggling with the PD or something changes, we sit down and we talk about what is my lifestyle or what are we still trying to accomplish? And so I do feel like the doctor I have now, I do feel like she works more with me and my husband on making these decisions along the way. And I know the doctor always knows best medically and so I always you know want to listen to her but she also listens to me and that's really important to me that even if in the end I may not always get my way with what with how my dialysis is going or whatever the situation is I walk away feeling like she's making that decision based on what I've told her and not necessarily on what as a nephrologist she thinks is best. Does that make sense? That's great. That's really great to hear. I would I would add also just to your um, explaining what patient-centered care is. I think we we were fortunate to meet a pediatric nephrologist so early on with my daughter's illness, who is still her pediatric nephrologist, 16 years later. And I think back to where we didn't have any option on the dialysis that we had to start this, you know, intense regimen of hemo during the day and PD at night. Um, he knew how <laughs> difficult this was for us. We had an older daughter who was three and a baby and, you know, we had to relocate to a new state. And I remember when we added the PD, I, I just thought that was going to put me over the edge. <laughs> and he said, you know, this is short-term pain for long-term gain. This is the best thing we need to do to make space for in her abdomen for her organs. And, you know, I just still remember that. It was so important. He spoke to me. He explained this to me. We really relied on his knowledge of this rare disease. But then I will tell you that listening to the family and, and our challenges was so important because when it came time to find a place for a transplant center, because of this rare illness, there were really only two or three places we could possibly go to do a combined kidney and liver transplant. But rather than telling us where we needed to go, 
he gave us the information. And fortunately, my husband and I were able to go interview and go to two of the centers where they had done this unique combined transplant on infants. And we were able to make the decision for our family. So it was incredibly helpful. And part of the reason we chose the place we chose was that we could stay where we were doing dialysis at that center with our three-year-old. And then when organs were available, she was on the wait list for seven weeks. And, you know, it was really difficult, those seven weeks waiting. But when it happened, when they were available, we got on an airplane and flew to the center. And that was huge because the other option meant we had to relocate to another state and sit there and be on dialysis. So we had we had influence or the ability to make decisions about this really difficult situation. And that's all because our physician was working with our family in this very difficult time. That was one of the biggest patient-centered now I know, I didn't know what it was at the time, but that's what that was. <laughs> and there have been other times along the way in her 15 years where we we are very involved, and she is too. She's 16 years old now, and she's part of the conversation about treatment. And she had a rejection issue a couple of years ago, and we kept her in the loop. She knew what was going on. She knew about the treatment. And so I'm grateful that that is the way healthcare is going, that there is a conversation with the patient and the family and it's shared decision. And, and I, I did want to point out, it's not to say that uh, patient-centered care is better than best interest approach care or vice versa. I think it's more about making room for all these different types of approaches. Patients come with different preferences and different values. There are some patients who are more than happy to defer decision-making to some to a clinician that they trust. And that's totally okay for them, and they should find a provider who can help them that way. But I think it's just making sure we know what are, what is the decision-making style that each family will, prefers and see if we can kind of sync up with that, just making room for these different possibilities. I just am curious now on the other side of things where both of you have seen both of these modalities and you've lived this experience. Is there something that you wish had happened differently in that entire process of the way that your medical team talked with you or bits of information that were shared along the way? Personally, I keep going back to my doctor shared the pros of switching from hemo to PD. And what I didn't understand at the time was that everything has its pros and cons. There are pros to chemo, there are pros to PD, and there are pros to transplant. None of them cure you, which was, honestly, it was difficult to understand that coming from the world of cancer, where I had a very strong faith for two years that everything I was going through was going to cure me. So when I started on dialysis, I thought it was going to cure me. So I didn't really understand what was really happening. And I didn't understand that there were pros and cons to hemo, pros and cons to PD, and pros and cons to transplant, and that they were all three just treatment options. They're life-saving in the sense that they keep you alive, but they don't cure you. And I didn't really understand that at the time. So then when I switched to PD, which overall for me and my husband, it is the better option, but I've been doing this for eight years. I've been on dialysis for eight years, and there are some drawbacks to doing PD that I didn't really realize. And, and some of the things that we've kind of, my husband and I've kind of figured out 
over the years about dialysis and PD is that, at least in my experience, I've never had a doctor or nurse actually be on dialysis. So I think, like from my doctor's perspective, she can only tell me medically, clinically, what to do, what to expect, what it's going to be like. And lately, we've been having a lot of conversations where I'm almost breaking down in tears trying to get her to understand. I know that what I'm telling you doesn't make sense because it's not, it doesn't make sense like medically based on like some of the other patients you have. But I'm telling you, this is my experience. And, and she's very good at listening. And we, we get through to each other eventually, you know, but it, I just didn't realize. I thought, oh, well, if I only have to do hemo for a year, then I only have to do PD for a couple of years. And then I'll be cleared from the cancer perspective to go for kidney transplant. Then I'm going to get a kidney and my life is going to be great. Well, eight years later, that's not exactly how, that's not the path that life has taken. And I also didn't understand that once I completely lost all my kidney output, I didn't understand that the dialysis was going to have to pick up more of the work. So I didn't realize that like eight hours of PD could eventually turn into 10 hours, which could eventually turn into 12 hours. So there's some of these drawbacks to PD that I didn't understand at the time when I made the decision. It's not a decision that I would have made differently had I been told that, but I am a person that I'm like, okay, here are the pros, here are the cons. Let me line them up and make the decision. And it, it was a different doctor at the time. You switched me to PD and that just wasn't, but that was also with the clinic too. The nurses were like, oh my gosh, you can do a manual and you fill and then you go about your day. And manuals are very difficult for me. And I can't just fill in a manual and go about my day and then come home and train. And then they're like, oh, when you do PD, all your food and drink restrictions ease up, which they do. But when you completely lose all your kidney output again, you go back to some restrictions. I felt like PD was sold to me as, well, I know transplants like the gold standard, but maybe the almost gold standard is how PD was kind of billed to me. And I wasn't prepared for like the roller coaster that you can experience on PD. That was a great answer, Elizabeth. And I think I relate to a lot of things you're talking about. I understand why it's difficult sometimes for physicians to kind of level with the patient or with the caregiver. Um, and so I think to answer your question earlier about what I would have liked to have seen change, I think, like you're saying, Elizabeth, I, I really just wanted to know what did the future look like? You know, here I am given this devastating news that I have a child that needs a double transplant. And, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that just needed to know what was ahead of me. Um, and so that didn't happen as quick as I wanted it to happen. You know, I was, I was ready to make my plan. And, you know, in my mind, it was, okay, get through the next year. This is going to be hard, but we can do it. 
And then we get to transplant. And like you're saying, it's supposed to be great. Everything's perfect after transplant. And, you know, so I think I would have liked to have the physician ask me sooner. Yeah. How much do you want That's to know? That's a very good question. <laughs> you know, how much information do you want? You know, like, do you want me to tell you everything? Or do you want me just to tell you, meter it out? Because what I was getting was metered out. And so I quickly said, I can't do that. I need to know what my goal is. Like, where are we trying to go with this? This is really hard. And I need to know there's an ending to this. So um, when I pushed at when she was about seven months old, six months old, maybe I said, okay, I need to know what's happening here. What, what, what's our plan? <laughs> um, and, and luckily he listened. And that's when we started talking about transplant centers and, you know, I could, I could, picture the future. And then the second piece of all of that was, you know, letting me know what transplant meant because it was so difficult pre-transplant. I just thought it cannot be this hard post-transplant and it really isn't. It's not as hard, but it's still hard. So I feel like post-transplant and everybody's situation is different, but it, for another three years, it was it was very difficult getting her to a point where she was stable. There we had viruses, we had EBV, we had BK, it was really hard and adjusting immunosuppression. We had a, a liver rejection issue. All of that was happening post-transplant. And so I guess I understand why that wasn't really explained to me pre because I probably would have had a nervous breakdown, but, <laughs> but I guess, um, so I guess, you know, my advice to physicians is find out what type of family you're dealing with. Is this a family that needs to know more and wants to know the answers to questions and so then try to answer those for them and lay it out or is it some someone who wants to be kind of told this is what you need to do and yeah they'll figure it out as they go so yeah sort of going back to actually what susan said which is like learn about the patient up front um and ask support, sort of those just person questions to learn more about that person that family so that you can help to navigate that and i can relate from the clinician side of being under pressure to feel as though i'm not going to take away hope that I'm not a Debbie Downer if I talk about cons. I, I it, it is, you know, it, it is a really difficult conversation. And I think why we are uh, uh, clinicians may be oriented this way even reaches back all the way to medical school. The education is so much around we can fix this, let's fix this, as opposed to let us let me help walk with you through this path. You know, I think it's just a different mentality. And I, I hope that, and I see it already, that medical education uh, is changing. The curriculum is changing in order to teach uh, future clinicians how to talk with patients in a better way, in a way that can, that can allow um, patients to speak up about what their preferences are, what their values. Something that both of you shared repeatedly was we had no choice. I just had to trust, uh, you know, the clinician. And that was something that was brought up in these interviews as well, in this theme of power dynamics. And what really struck me and really opened my eyes as well as all the different ways that patient family members had to be creative to kind of share their uncertainty, share their doubt. You know, you know, it's really sold that PD well to me, but I don't know, I'm kind of harboring these thoughts, these doubts. And it was so, it was so interesting to see the different ways that patients had to try and confront their provider. Some didn't at all. Some concealed their doubt. Um, some tried to use humor. Some tried to use deferential questions and respect to, to honor their expertise. But I, I just wondered, how did you guys 
try to share that, share that skepticism, share those doubts, share those questions and needs with your, with your own clinicians. So there are three people that would kind of be involved in that. So like I said, from the beginning, I didn't have a choice. So I was in a hospital being treated for cancer. It was a cancer hospital. So it's not like the doctor that came to me was even a kidney cancer doctor. He was a bone marrow doctor, you know? And so I really did have to trust him when he came to me and said, you have to start dialysis. I mean, basically he was like, we can keep trying to treat you with Lasix, but you know, I didn't even know what dialysis was, but I'm like, sure, dialysis, whatever, you know? So I really did have to trust him. And then once they got me started, I did see their nephrology oncologist, one of the fellows there, and they really walked me through while I was in the hospital there. But when you're there, you're there. And, you know, you just, you start on hemo. So then when I came home, the doctor that I had here, and they started talking to me about PD, I never really questioned him or I I would say like, as you put it, Dr. Wong, like maybe concealed some doubts for a couple of reasons. One, he wasn't my favorite doctor. I mean, I liked him okay, but I kind of left, for lack of a better phrase, my oncology cocoon where I was surrounded by a different type of caring. So my nephrologist here was good and I liked him fine, but he just wasn't like my favorite. And so I just kind of went with like, he's making this PD sound really good. So, and it gets me away from having to do the clinic three days a week. So that sounds great. But I also wasn't in, I felt like I was in a place mentally where I needed to get out of doing in clinic. I was depressed. There was a lot that I was dealing with. And so I felt like whatever gets me out of the clinic setting and doing it at home sounds great. Let's do that. The nephrologist I have now, she and I have a much better relationship. And I feel like she and I can talk to each other and I don't feel like I have to be nervous about asking her questions. And if she suggests something and I question her about it, I don't worry that she thinks I'm questioning her as a doctor. She knows that I'm just questioning so that I'm making the best decision for myself based on what she's telling me. You know, I've kind of gone through different phases of how I've handled questioning based on where I was in that moment of having to make the decision of dialysis or switching modalities. You know, I think because I had such a a small little baby and she was ill, I learned very quickly to advocate for her. And so it, it wasn't hard for me when I didn't understand what was going on or I, you know, if medical terminology was being used or I didn't, wasn't clear on the plan. I just, part of me just woke up and I started to ask questions. And when I sensed that I may be overstepping a line. I I think I used humor, I self-deprecating humor. I'm sorry, I'm that mom. Uh, you know, I used that with physicians and nurses. <laughs> and you know, I we were at dialysis every single day. And so I got to know the nurses so well. And they thought, oh great, here comes that mom, you know. Um, <laughs> and I made fun of myself because yes, that was my baby. I was not gonna let things go wrong. So I just quickly learned and I learn to speak up if something seemed not quite right. Um, And fortunately, I think I did it in a way that 
I, I think was nice and they understood where it was coming from. I would say things like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm just asking because I'm concerned about it and I want to make sure that this is the right path. That was kind of the route I took then and have been taking ever since. And I think our physician learned quickly that we are a family that really needs to know. So uh, every time he sees us, he's like, okay, what are your questions? And my husband and I just <laughs> start asking all of our questions and some of them are out in left field. But the other piece though, I think that helped me very much so was at the time when my daughter was diagnosed, there really wasn't any way to meet other people going through what we'd been through. And there was actually a foundation for her disease where I found one other woman who had been through a similar situation. And so that gave me hope learning that this person had been through <laughs> chemo and PD and a double transplant. Her daughter was a few years older than mine and she was post-transplant and doing fine. And I really needed that. And that was incredible to have this mentor. And that's why I've become a mentor to many other people since then. But the reason why I bring that up is I, our physician was open to that when I would say, well, you know, there's this child I know that had the same situation. And this is sort of what she told me. Um, <laughs> and I'm sure that's not always a pleasant situation for a physician to hear, you know, hearsay from another relationship. But I think it's important to know that we need to talk to other people going through something similar. I was offered, you know, so-and-so's uncle had a liver transplant. Do you want to talk to him? No, I don't. Thank you. I, I need to talk to someone who had an infant who is doing hemodialysis and peritoneal and is going to get a double transplant. So I think that's another piece that I think is very important. We need to find people who can relate to what we're going through. And and if physicians can see that as not a threat, but a need. And so our physician has helped us actually connect to other people after that as well, and is definitely an advocate of mentoring caregivers of children with kidney disease. So I think that's an important piece as well. I, I want to add something else um, from earlier when Taylor was talking about the patient, because your situation is unique. You oftentimes have a caregiver who's providing for the patient and then the patient as they age and get closer to adulthood, how it's important to be talking to them, to the patient as well, so that they can be a part of the decisions that are made. And I think I want to echo that because that is what I've seen with my daughter. And she, you know, our physician is open to her emailing questions to him directly. And she always has time alone in the clinic visits as much as we can, making sure she's part of the conversation and that is such an important piece, I think, for pediatrics that that the patient is involved so that when they do eventually transition into adult care, then they're not completely lost and they're not taking care of themselves. So I, I just want to echo what you said earlier about how important that is. Yeah. Thank you, Antara. Uh, some of the parents I work with too, like you're describing how you gained all this expertise and then use that to be really vigilant in your child's care. And some parents I work with almost describe needing to like impart that to their children too. Are you going through that right now? And you know, what advice, I guess, would you give to other parents navigating that or to clinicians supporting that, that navigation of that process? Yes, I'm absolutely going through that. I mean, that's luckily, I think um, when she was around 10, that was when my eyes were opened that I had just hadn't thought about it before because I think I was always playing catch up with taking care of her. I realized, oh, ultimately, <laughs> she will have to do this herself. So what are the things that we can do? And our, you know, our hospital also starts a program when they're about 12 years old. And so right along, I've been thinking about 
and with various tools that are out there with helping with this eventual transition. But everything I do, I think about what could she be doing? Could she be doing part of this? And from a very early age, from filling you know medication boxes and understanding what her medications are and eventually ordering medications and then making her appointments herself and just being a bigger participant in her own care. And now it's conversations that we have about, you know, I'm very honest with her that, you know, my biggest fear is that you won't take care of yourself. And she said, mom, of course I will. Of course I will. But, you know, we can, we always worry as parents. So um, I, I really think that's important. And, and so to answer the question, I think helping caregivers understand that that's ultimately the goal and starting much before they're 16 or 17 or 18. It really starts when they're 10, 11, 12, so that the kids know, you know, now my daughter really does completely take care of herself. It's amazing. And she's 16. So she's still here living with us, but I'm not as worried about when she goes to college because I'm seeing her do it every day here at home. So I'm grateful for that, that we started early on. So I, I really encourage physicians to impart that um, knowledge and caregivers early on that their job is to not have a job eventually <laughs> and have the patient take care of themselves. Put you out of business, so to speak. <laughs> right. I think for adults, we're on the other end of the spectrum where it, as in pediatrics, you have this emerging uh, autonomy that comes from the patient uh, into adulthood, but near the end of our lives, um, we become increasingly dependent on our caregivers. And through other medical illness, um, things like dementia, our ability to be that autonomous decision maker goes down. And then not only that, as we become more dependent on others, our success is completely reliant on whether we have caregiver buy-in. And so I, I think our conversations are on the other end. And I, I will say the study actually, because I'm a geriatric nephrologist, you know, focus more on the older population. Um, and I think we struggle with the same ways about how do we make room? How do we still honor that patient's autonomy, even though it may be on the other, we may be on the other end of this, whether it be through encouraging them to complete living wills or advanced directives, some written testimony. Of, of what their preferences would be, finding somebody that they trust to be their soapbox. I think it's really difficult to differentiate what I would want and then what my loved one would want. And can I acknowledge and accept it, even though it's something I would never want for myself? You know, I think that that really finding that person you trust who could who can honor your wishes, not their own, is it can be challenging and helping surrogates and patience with that um, that process um, but then also always building into practice when critical decisions need to be made and then maybe the patient can't be there for whatever reason uh, um, is that you know if if the patient were sitting here in the room with us what would he or she say and always making sure you ask that question uh, before any decision is made. So well, it's been a pleasure today to meet all of you and have a conversation about this important idea of shared decision-making. And it was really great to learn more about your study. So thank you so much for sharing that study with us. And it was, yeah, it was great really to good. meet all of you. Yeah, likewise. Yes, nice thank to meet you. Both thank you for sharing your stories. Yes, absolutely. I had a great time. As with every episode, we want to give a shout out to someone in our community celebrating an important milestone. Wade Witzelsteiner is celebrating the 10-year anniversary of receiving a kidney transplant from his father. 
Congratulations on a decade kidney strong Wade. Thank you for listening. Make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also email us directly with your comments and suggestions at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. We hope you will join us next time. And from all of us at NKF, we wish you good health.